We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Ghouls and gore. And sometimes a little more. My bloody podcast. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to my bloody podcast. We're so excited to have this episode come to you today. Oh, my gourd. I'm Brian Kluger, and I'm joined by the host with the most, the man who I want to go searching out and exploring monsters with, Preston Barta. What's up, buddy? Not much. How are you doing? Oh, I'm just... I'm just ecstatic. I'm excited. Uh, and I'm just so excited that we have an excellent guest today, a legendary intercontinental champion of film, television, movies. Oh, man. Andre Gower. What's up, bud? Uh, that very well may be at the top of the list of intros. I didn't know there was a intercontinental title, but I'm glad. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. You hold it, man. You hold it. <laughs> I will take it. <laughs> I gave you a little room to breathe there because there is a universal cha- universal champion spot. So there, we, we we got there. Look, you know, baby steps, baby, baby steps, steps baby and, steps. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll start training as soon as we uh, log off, and uh, you know, we'll we'll see what we can do. So we're going to talk to uh, Andre today about his new doc that he directed and wrote and produced and all that good stuff. Wolfman's Got Nards, which is an amazing exploration and retrospective of the film The Monster Squad, which Andre starred in, and its fans and its cult status and love, appreciation, and passion over the years. Um, But first, we have to start at the very beginning, Andre. Where did it all start with you in Uh-oh. film? Was it something that you watched when you were little? How did you get into this business? What was that passion, that spark that got you here? Where did the itch? Uh, it, well, I mean, I, I started in this industry at a very young age. So I think that sort of, I don't know if that was the itch or if that was like I was just thrown into the briar patch <laughs> to get all cut <laughs> up. Um, you know, when you when you start something, when you're like, I don't know, a career at five or six, Um, you know, it's just, I don't know really of a time that, you know, film and TV wasn't a part of my existence. Um, You know, you you start, you start out at a very young age. My sister was in the business before I was, she's a couple of years older than I am. And so that was just sort of um, either the gateway or, you know, the slip and slide right into the, (laughs) you know, into just being next in line. But it was, you know, one of those things, you know, you hear a lot of stories, you know, with kids in the business and especially at a young, young age, uh, you know, is it really your decision? Is it somebody else's decision? You know, what is it? Um, I, I had, my parents were, you know, pretty cool, pretty awesome, uh, pretty supportive and protective. Uh, but it was just something that everybody was interested in. And I was around it being around my sister. And I think a lot of times when, especially with young kids, it's, it's like fish out of water. And then sometimes it's like a duck in water. And I think I was just a duck in the water. Like I, you know, jumped in and I was comfortable and swam around and, you know, could live in, you know, 
you know, ducks can live in the water and live on the land too. So, uh, you know, I had, I grew up with two different experiences, but, um, I, I don't see either one as a detraction from the other. They're just value adds that helped both. So what was the spark? I think just being around, you know, a very unique opportunity from a very young age and to grow up and do a ton of television and, and films and, and, and just be around, you know, performers and entertainers and creatives and executives. And, you know, it's something very unique and not everybody in the world gets to experience all that. So, you know, you kind of got to appreciate just the opportunity a little bit. Uh, you know, they kind of either set you on your path or, you know, give you a little bit of, you know, you know, cognitive de- development, you know, help as, as you're a young age and figure out who you are and what you are and where you are. Um, so it just kind of, it envelops everything and it leads to cool stuff. Was it something that maybe your family asked you, like, hey, do you like acting? And you said, oh, yeah, okay, let's do this. Or... Yeah. I, you know, I don't even remember if that happened. I mean, so young, I think we're just around it and just started doing it because, you know, my sister worked quite a bit, you know, at a young age and, you know, her being a little bit older, I was always tagging along with either my mother or my dad or my, you know, sister, my, my sister wasn't driving, you know, to auditions when she was, you know, 10, but um, you're just kind of around it. I think I was just next, <laughs> you know, just kind of like, Hey, you're, you're, you're going to enjoy this as well. Um, you know, see, see if it, see if it works. And like I said, I think it it works. I jumped in and started swimming. So. um, And you did that. And I know you've mentioned before, at least to me that you love the education and teaching whatever arena there is in that. And so did you take any classes on acting or like you said, you just jumped in and perfect to go. Yeah. uh, Even at a young age, you know, there's always, you know, classes or workshops or, you know, group, you know, things to to do. And I, I did a little of that. I didn't do too much. Uh, I think it was, um, I was fortunate enough to not be intimidated by it, um, you know, to understand, you know, how to take direction, how to do things, you know, and have some semblance of natural ability to, you know, kind of convey what's supposed to be conveyed. You, you can always improve and you can always get feedback and, and do it better. And 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 I think that's when people succeed a little bit easier if they're open to that. I, you know, but as I got older, I, you know, I didn't do the whole, you know, Strasburg or Stella Adler or the, you know, the, the method, you know, workshops or anything like that. You know, I kind of went the other path. It was, Hey, this is, you know, something fun. It's something, you know, it's relatively simple, although you got to know a lot of things, how to do them and do them well and got to be professional. And um, that doesn't mean I'm, you know, diminishing, you know, you know, workshops or, or schools or, you know, schools of teaching or method acting or anything. Some of the best ones out there are strict method actors and they are phenomenal. Uh, I just, I just never did. I don't know if I had the extra time to do it because not only did I work quite a bit as a kid, if you're not on a set, you're going, you know, I always went to, you know, regular school if I wasn't on, you know, actively working. And then I was always busy with extracurricular stuff like, you know, organized sports and activities and events, whether they were industry related or not industry related. So I don't know where I would have crammed that in. <laughs> somewhere between, you know, baseball practice, uh, you know, school and basketball practice and friends' birthday parties. I don't know. Oh, that's great. And what age were you, when you first got notice of Monster Squad script. And I guess my second part to that question is you've done, you've done uh, projects before 
Monster Squad, and then you read Monster Squad, and it seems like the best production for a kid at any age, really, to be a part of. So what was your thoughts? And like, I got to do this. What, what was that like? Well, it's, uh, I mean, it's easy in hindsight to go back and go, you know, you know, what was it like to find out and like read Monday and go, this is, you know, an amazing thing. Like, you don't know what anything's going to be until you actually see it or do it or experience it. And it all ended up being awesome. Uh, that was the summer of 86 uh, or, you know, early fall of 86, August, September, or something like that. Just regular audition process, you know, and at this time I'm 13. I'm right in the middle of kind of a, a building kind of, you know, kind of robust, you know, TV run and trajectory and, you know, working quite a bit, um, you know, especially at that time. And then including Monster Squad and after Monster Squad, uh, I did I did a lot of television. And a lot of episodics, a lot of guest spots, a lot of um, and, and a lot of series. And I always joke that, you know, I was one of the you know the younger actors in that time that was fortunate enough to do a lot of the work. But I did five or six TV shows that went one season instead of one show that went six seasons that everybody knows, you know. And so I kind of have this kind of hodgepodge uh, kind of television resume. But some of it's pretty, some of it's pretty bitching. And, you know, would you trade that to do one show for five, six, seven years? And then that's your thing. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows? But leading up to the Monster Squad, you know, it was a lot of people know it. And I don't know if, you know, we've discussed it before in the past, but I never auditioned one time for the role of Sean. I, I originally auditioned for the role of Rudy. And uh, because up until that time, sort of my latest body of work and appearances and characters on TV shows and stuff was... <laughs> you know, the, the cool kid with, uh, you know, a lot of hair product and, you know, leather jacket maybe. And that was just sort of like an obvious, you know, audition submission at that time and got called in to read for this movie that no one knew anything about. And, but it was a big studio movie, big budget, supposed to have a lot of action, a lot of monsters, whatever. And then you really don't get all the information when you're just auditioning the first, you know, two or three times, you're just getting, you know, a couple scenes and then you read the whole script and, and then you realize that, well, this is kind of a big, big thing. And then a couple of weeks later, you get the call and, you know, your agent says, hey, that movie you read for, you know, a couple of weeks ago, they, they cast you in it. And first of all, the question is, well, which one? Because at that time, we're all reading for everything like daily, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're going on one, two, three, five auditions a day, you know, in the afternoon sometimes when you're lucky enough to be in that kind of uh, category. And you know, said, Oh, the monster squad. Oh, great. And like, well, you know, they didn't cast you in the role that you auditioned for. And that's usually terrible news. (laughs) You know, it's usually like, Oh, they give you a lesser role or a smaller role or a different role. And I was, I was a little deflated and they're like, no, 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 it's good news. They they actually just straight cast you as the lead. And I was like, damn it. No, that Rudy character was the awesome one. He got to kill all the characters and he's the cool kid. Uh, Oh man. Uh, but look, it was, I always say, I know exactly why all that happened. Um, I know Ryan Lambert walked into that final audition and just murdered it. And he became Rudy that day. And he always has been, uh, could I have played Rudy in the movie? Sure. Would it have been okay? Sure. I don't know. It'd have been fun and maybe a little campy or a little bit more forced. Um, but it, it would have worked, but Ryan is Rudy and mm-hmm. it just, you know, it, 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 we know that everybody's in their right spot and, you know, I've been looking back at that kind of instance. I've, I, I've been telling that story for years, but recently I've realized that I'm very fortunate that 
whoever it was, whether it was the casting director, uh, Penny Perry or Fred or Shane or Peter Hines or somebody in that room, after the fact that Ryan comes in and nails Rudy, that they said, well, who are we going to cast as Sean? And they read dozens of people for Sean. And they go, what about that one kid that we read for Rudy that you know we liked but didn't choose him for Rudy? Could he be Sean? And someone said, yeah, let's you know take the gunk out of his hair, give him a terrible haircut, you know, put him in some clothes that don't fit, and I think he could be Sean. And I did. They never had a meeting. Never came. Like never auditioned. Never had to read Sean line. They just straight cast me. And you know, you got to realize that you're really fortunate enough when some somebody has that kind of you know foresight or you know different angle of thinking because they could have just picked from the pool of kids that, they, that actually auditioned for Sean and we wouldn't be sitting here today. And but you got to kill the big baddie at the end though. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it all, it all worked out. Rudy kills more monsters, you know, gets the girl. He's the cool one. Everybody loves Rudy. Um, but everybody worked out to be in the exact, you know, perfect spot. And yeah, uh, you know, Sean gets to kill uh, Dracula, <laughs> which is not, you know, which is not a bad claim to fame. At what point in the script did you realize that this was something really special? Because I think for the audience, it's that that text that's on the screen. And then they, at the very bottom, it says they blew it. And you're like, yes, this is going to be a fun journey. I, I think reading the original draft or drafts of Shane's script, which was bigger, longer, much broader, much more expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot packed into that. Uh, and there was a lot more packed into that you know, cold open as well, uh, that, you know, that, 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 that crawl leads into, uh, there was a lot, I knew it was different and neat in the original drafts for a couple reasons. And one is they originally spent a lot of time developing and introducing these kids, Sean, Patrick, Eugene, Horace, uh, and then Rudy and, and, and stuff to really explain and have exposition that these kids are not just comic book, you know, readers. I mean, yeah, they enjoy comic books, but it's all, t- they know their monster lore. They know the literature. They know the old books. They know the old movies. They don't, they know everything about all of this stuff. And that was really kind of explained in original pages in the first drafts. And then of course it was kind of much more bigger and awesome in that, you know, cold open in the Van Helsing days. Um, because it was a much, in the original script, I think there was like, a hundred sailing ships or something storming the beach and, you know, like Zeppelins in the sky and stuff, which would have been amazing. Even if he did it with, you know, you know, matte painting or visual effect, that would have been amazing kind of look. Uh, And that's a very Shane Black esque and, you know, Fred kind of grand, you know, vision of something. And it was much longer. They spent a lot more time. They had a big battle and they, a lot of people don't understand that when they say they blew it. And then we just go into the movie, what that meant. Mm-hmm. And we all know what that meant because we read it on the page and they shot the scenes. They just didn't put them in the movie and they blow it because they actually chase down after this big bat and they chase down Dracula, Duncan Regeer, and they hold him up against a tree and Ben Helsing stakes him right through the heart. And then they go up in the castle to do the, to, you know, to, to do the thing, I guess, if that was the order of it, but they leave, the Dracula's staked body in a wagon. And like, I always call them a red shirt, like the red shirt sitting by the mm-hmm. campfire guarding the wagon while they're off and out of the woods come three vampire brides. 
and he stands up and you know shoots one with a crossbow, takes her out. The other one's close and he jabs her, and then the other one's on him and I guess you know choking him and you know getting the upper hand, and he's flailing around. And his hand lands on a stake and he takes it and kills her. And of course, everybody knows that when you unstake a staked vampire, they of course come back to life. And so this guy defeats him and you know has a winning moment that oh I survived I killed three vampire brides. And then Duncan Regeer sits up in the wagon and looks at him and then goes to the present day. And so that's how they blew it. Uh, Cause they unstaked Dracula. He's been walking around for a hundred years. They didn't kill, they didn't get him. And I thought that, I thought that was a fantastic bit yeah. <laughs> and we never see it. And yeah. it's just sort of assumed like, Oh, they said they blow up. We don't have, so let's just get into the, into the present day movie. Um, and then we also lose a little of that backstory and exposition with the kids of really they are experts and, you know, figuring something out and realizing something's happening. And the, you know, the adults just won't give them, you know, a, a chance to explain or they don't believe them. And, you know, we kind of just jump right into the story when Monster Squad starts, which is actually kind of what a lot of people really like. And, you know, it makes the movie quick and, you know, it starts and it doesn't really stop and you meet your characters. A lot of those things are, you know, they're inside the gaps or you just assume they're in between the lines and um, this movie just kind of rolls and it's a very short 82 minutes, including yeah. the cold open. So it's, uh, those are always things we always miss in, in the original script and, and, and plus deleted scenes and some, some, some script pages that got chomped down as we were shooting. But that always happens with movies, but you never want it to happen with yours. <laughs> right. So what was those, what were the, some of those early conversations between Shane and Fred that where it's like, as you were saying, you don't get all those exposition, but you get these little moments that show, uh, have the audience, informs the audience so much about your character. And uh, so what were those conversations where it's like, hey, this is like this moment where it really shows like what kind of person you are in this film? And I think, uh, like I said, I think all that sort of just gets trimmed and we jump into it. I don't know, between Fred and Shane, when they were revising, you know, for budget or, you know, shoot days or, you know, a production schedule. um, You know, I just remember, you know, when you're on on set or on the day or on location and you're looking at your pages for the day, because, you know, you know, most people know you don't shoot a movie in sequence and you're jumping around and it's due to location and timing and day night, you know, daytime or nighttime and, uh, you know, so you're kind of jumping around the story and you're, you're just absorbing all this and trying to go and like, Oh, that scene got cut, but it kind of mushed into this one. So this is what we're doing. And you just kind of go, but you know, I think it all worked out in the wash at the end and you do get those tidbits. You, you do understand. I always lamented that we don't get the backstory with every single one of these kids of the squad and get, you know, kind of how much they know about each thing. Uh, but I don't think it's really lost. You know, like right. you said, you know, you, you, you get to understand that they're, they know, and that's always, brevity is always better. <laughs> yeah. Brevity is always better. And, uh, you know, I think it worked out just fine. Yeah. I appreciate it now watching it as an adult, you know, when I was a kid watching it, you know, I'm really into like what the kids are thinking about, but now watching it as a parent myself, I really like the parents in this film and like just even them taking just a little bit of time for that dialogue that happens between the two parents about like, uh, we need to do counseling. He's like, you know, how do you, you got to show that you love me too. Like, and then him coming on the roof to have a cheeseburger yeah. with you, like just those little <laughs> moments, they mean so much. And that's what I like about, like about being a parent too. And you know, it's, this is the second, uh, you know, mention of that very thing with, you know, fans that, you know, saw it when we were kids 
uh, but now have families of their own and they see that they watch the movie now and it's a completely different experience. Right. And, uh, you know, it doesn't mean they were viewing it wrong before. It's just a different perspective. And that's a fascinating conversation. And it's great that you bring it up because now it's like, that's a thing. And I I think that's on, I I think that's on purpose. You know, it's not just this rompy kids movie that goes around. I'm like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of shit pecked in that monster squad story. (laughs) You know, uh, whether we get five minutes on each little packet, no, but it could be just a reference or a thing. And, but everybody can, you know, relate and understand what it is like, you know, not only is Sean and Phoebe end up in this crazy supernatural adventure with monsters coming out of the sky, uh, but their family's breaking up. Like it's like their parents are, you know, splitting. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people admit, you know, an interesting thing, if you didn't see it in the movie theater, you never had a chance of seeing it in widescreen unless I think you own the Japanese laser disc, which was very few of those here in the States. Uh, but you always saw it on HBO or VHS or TV. And it was always ratio, you know, aspect ratio was mushed and pan and scanned and you miss a lot of stuff Yeah, that you miss the widescreen. And no one saw that again until 2006 on 35 in a, in a, in a movie theater at the Alamo draft house, you know, the old one in Austin, Brian. And, um, like, for instance, you know, with the parent, it's a great scene. It, it's a great bookend scene of the, the Sean and Dell scene in the, in, the, in, the, in the bedroom and then on the roof, like you mentioned. Th- th- those are great moments. But there's also a great moment when Emily's tucking Phoebe in bed and they're having a conversation. And it's so confusing because Phoebe's almost the adult in the conversation and Emily's trying to backtrack and, you know, whittle out of it. And, uh, you know, are you going to yell at him? And she's like, oh, you know, I love your father. She's like, no, Sean, for scary. He's like, oh, of course you did. My, you know, other things in my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, then has the candle. It's talking about the candle there. And that's a setup for a payoff that we get later. And if you never see the widescreen version, you don't get this, you don't get the payoff because when the mother's in the closet, when shit starts happening, that candle just blinks out in the fore, in the foreground of the shot. And she even turns around. It's like, something's weird, but the, the candle goes out. But, 20 minutes earlier or whatever, we had a conversation that the candle keeps monsters away, but the candle blinks out. And if you don't see the widescreen edition, you, you miss that. The other thing, you know, back on track is with the parents when <laughs> after Stan Shaw gets blowed up in the squad car uh, and uh, you know, Dell runs into the house and, you know, contacts us on the walkie talkie because um, he's in like just dad protective mode and the wife's there and she's like, I, you know, stuff's going down when he runs upstairs and comes back down you don't a lot of people miss the luggage by the door like she was gone she's leaving like she's out she had had it and so like the mom's gone <laughs> and you know if monsters hadn't come to town maybe the kids would have gone with her and then like leave Dylan that you know there's a whole other story going on there yeah. uh, and it's just sort of just touched just a little bit and uh, you know, and then you have a Holocaust reference, you know, with, you know, that, that's hidden after a line about vampires not having reflections, you know, which is a setup for a payoff later that we never get because it wasn't shot. And that's really what I always see Monster Squad, the final product of, you know, the, the movie in 87. It's a series of setups that we don't get the payoffs. And it's a series of payoffs that we don't know are payoffs because we never got the setup. Mm. <laughs> and, and when you've read the original drafts, because that's how Fred and Shane write, man, they, they, they write in overall stories. So you're going to come back around and finish your story, but then there's packets of action and story and exposition. They're all little small chapters of setups and payoffs. And then you have the big setup and payoff and monster squad just, you know, all those, you know, some of those just like, think, think that's a think, whether they were cut from the page, 
rewritten, torn out, or shot and not put in the movie. But when you know like some of the stuff that was there, you're like, where was that thing? Where was that thing? You're like, ah. But what you end up with is a movie that everybody related to. It's nice and short. It's 82 minutes total runtime. And that's one of everybody's favorite things is that it's not two hours long. That's cool. Um, so with the success and fandom of Monster Squad, you know, most actors or people that are part of film don't are not part of a movie in their entire lifetime like Monster Squad that is timeless and universally loved forever. Um, and there's only a handful of movies of people that can say that do that. And you're part of that with Monster Squad. And I think you were probably the first one to see that, uh, that fandom and love appreciation still 20, 30 years later. Um, and this led you to Wolfman's Got Nards, a documentary, which you made. And where, was there like a particular moment in time where it's like, we've got to make this? Or was it something that's been boiling over the pot for years? Or is it something like, oh my God, I just went to this screening, this reaction, there's something here. You know, I, I think the moment... I kind of remember the moment when I thought of a documentary, but it was something very different from what we actually have. But that moment uh, was a result of a, of, of the buildup or, you know, the, the cumulative experience of, you know, the, the seven, eight, nine years prior to that, since the resurgence and that original reunion screening at the Alamo, and then having this kind of, you know, explosion and research, literal resurrection of a dead movie. And not only a resurrection where people say, we loved it, we just want to let you know, bye. And we're like, oh, that's what we thought it was for like a year or two. We really did. We're like, hey, you know what? This is kind of interesting. You know, everybody likes to get a little, you know, uh, you know, a little attention. And, you know, they're just saying thanks and bye. They are not saying bye. <laughs> they were like, uh, we have held on to this for 20 years. We're letting you know now. And we've been building on each other for two decades and we're just taking you with us now because now you're aware of this. And then the whole world, you know, uh, and industry responded to that. But really what it was is the culmination or the, the cumulative effect in experiencing these, the, these en masse groups at screenings or conventions or panels partnered with these one-on-one -on -one interactions with fan after fan after fan that you realize that you think they're fans to begin with and they are fans, but monster squad fans aren't really fans. They are part of the fabric of the experience of this movie for some reason. And you start to realize that after it doesn't die down and these one-on-one -on -one stories and these interactions that we all started getting with everybody at conventions and screenings and panels and things like that, really started to interest me because the stories were, you know, you hear the same story a lot. You hear very many different stories, but they were all sort of in the same theme. And the theme was that something connected with this person and ended up impacting their life and they are not letting it go. And they will not let it go because it, it is part of that. Like for some reason that they are really connected to this movie. It transcended just like, I really love that movie. And it's so cool to meet you, bro. You know, it's like, yeah, that's awesome. We get that. But monster squad fans, like Brian, you mentioned, there's a, there's a, 
I started to realize, and then we discussed it, you know, Ryan and Ashley and I and other people that were involved. It was like, there's something different here. Like it's not, you could be at a huge cult, you know, pop culture convention or horror convention, see all these great people and they're interacting with fans, but it's not, you know, that, that fan connection to whatever they're doing over there is not the same thing as they're doing over here with us for some reason. And I, I, I became very aware of that after a length of time and then realized that those stories are very unique in this realm. And I thought those stories were a story. And then I was like, well, it's these fans. Like the only reason, the original idea, I remember the day I was walking in my neighborhood, you know, having lunch or something. And I come up with these ideas and I get on the phone. I talk to, you know, you know, somebody I know, or I, I think I called my sister and, and, and had an idea. And I was like, hey, the 30th anniversary year is coming up next year. And we're going to do, you know, probably do five, six, you know, big conventions. I'm sure there'll be 10 or 12 screenings or, you know, one a month or something. Um, what would it look like? I, I think we need to do something cool. And right at this moment, um, Ryan Lambert and I had been working on some projects together and we had our podcast and, uh, you know, we, we went to conventions as like a duo, like a team. And we had a little brand called Ryan and Andre and we had our website and our podcast site. And I was like, maybe like I just go out and get like a, a shitty used camera and, uh, you know, we're going to go on the road this year. Let's just snap some footage get some, you know, interaction with some fans and like do some B-roll of us walking around. And then there's probably four or five big fans we know in LA that would come and sit down, you know, at my house or something and talk about their experience. And then let's get one of our cool filmmaker friends to like edit it, you know, you know, for, you know, cheeseburgers or something. And then we'll put it on our website and, you know, or maybe sell it for a buck or a donation, you know, team of something. That was the original kind of idea. And I experimented with that for a little bit and went to one event and kind of did that. It just, it was, it was, it was not good. And I was like, that, that doesn't work. That's, that's not as good as it should be because it's not servicing what I think the story is. And at the same time, I was extremely busy because the doc was like third in line of projects because I was in uh, negotiations with um, ironically Lionsgate at the time for a TV show. Uh, that was going to be on Comic-Con HQ, that channel that lasted for a couple of years. And that lasted like six months. And then right at the same time, I had pitched the the show Short Ends, which was, a, you know, kind of a showcase show for uh, shorts and, uh, you know, shorts filmmakers and and how, you know, it was a hosted show and we would, you know, show three or four shorts. And I created that show and I pitched it right then, Brian, I actually pitched that at Fantastic Fest and sold that to Nerdist. And all, this was all at the same time happening. And, and the doc sort of got sideburnered a little bit. And there's a reason. Uh, it was all about timing. And actually, our family's oldest friends, you know, their, their daughter, Jen, worked at this company called Pilgrim Studios uh, as a post supervisor. And we were just going to lunch one day. And I said, oh, I'll swing by. I'm downstairs. Come jump in. And she said, okay. And she got in the car and she goes, Hey, remember how I've told you that like, there's a whole, you know, you know, team of, you know, production guys, you know, that work on my floor that are monster squad fans. I was like, yeah, you did mention that. She goes, well, that's one of them right there. I was like, who? And there was just, you know, this kid unloading a truck of gear. And I said, who's that? She goes, I think that's Anthony. I said, his name, let's go talk to Anthony. And so like, I shut the car off when we got out. And that's the, that's the, you know, whatever serendipitous or sliding doors decision that why we're talking here today. And I've 
got these things behind me uh, is because I went over to talk to this kid, Anthony. And she goes, Anthony, come on over. This and he's like, holy shit. He's like, what's up, man? I was like, how are you? And da-da-da. He's like, big fan. I was like, that's awesome. What are you doing? He's like, I'm unloading gear from a shoot. And I was like, that's cool. And while we were talking, three other guys came out of the front door about 30 yards down the sidewalk. And it was Henry McComas, Wes Caldwell, and Aaron Kunkel, who, if you look at the credits of Wolfman's Cut and Hards, the, 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 the three main leads of my production team. And they realized who I was. I had met Wes at a screening, you know, earlier that year, but, you know, didn't recognize because we didn't interface. And we sat and talked. And then we talked about what we were doing. And then Henry's like, we need to go have lunch. I said, okay. Because we had mentioned the, the, the TV show, the short ends, and this doc project. And he goes, wait, you're doing a doc project? He goes, we need to talk about that. And so we went to lunch and then we came up with this idea and happened very quickly. And we ended up kind of, kind of breaking the kind of development story of what we would do and how we would pitch it to the executives there. And, you know, not a couple weeks later, I was signing a deal with, you know, Pilgrim Media Group to co-produce and make this documentary with, with me. And that day was that day of serendipity to meet Henry and the guys. And those guys, especially Henry, uh, you know, cause Henry and Wes and Aaron, you know, they shot everything. Henry edited the whole thing, color corrected, broke the story, remolded it as we were going, you know, I was there with them and they went on the road with us. That was, that was the team, you know, with a couple other people like, you know, Shane and Esteban and Eric sitting in the office doing production management and scheduling. And we just ended up cramming a bunch of stuff in 10 months and, oh. and, and Henry ended up making a fabulous cut. Oh, it was amazing. And I remember, you know, you bring it to Fantastic Fest for a couple of years. And I remember, I believe I uh, did an interview for the for the doc, documentary. And I remember talking about uh, the Holocaust thing, which always stuck out to me. Uh, right. It was really cool. But uh, with that being said, you got your doc ready to be made and you're going across the country filming, you know, filmmakers, actors, fans across the, across the globe, which we'll get into in a second. But first I want to bring up uh, what it must've felt like. Um, It was probably emotional to have all these people, people who are in the business for a long time, as well as fans uh, and passionate people who've seen the movie really pour out their heart and soul talking about something they love so much and then have that come full circle when you premiered it at Fantastic Fest or the little bit that was that did happen when the whole cast came back mm-hmm. and built the clubhouse. And I've never seen such a reunion of people so happy to be with each other again, like I did with the Monster Squad. So I want to ask you, what was it like emotionally to go through all of that? You know, it, it, it certainly it, uh, it was a... a, a personal whirlwind or, you know, vortex of, you know, uh, emotions, you know, ups, downs, you know, getting knocked on your ass and, and, and just being very, you know, joyful and happy by getting to do something that's really exciting and working with this team that, I mean, these guys worked on this movie every day, all day while they were doing like another project simultaneously. And I, I, I dragged them all over the place, but just like, they felt that, you know, they always say this was their job because they worked at the studio and got assigned to make this, but we, you know, we, we kind of worked, you know, together. We brought it from the ground up. They never felt like this was their job. 
they never felt like it was work to work on this this project and i didn't either i just saw it as a as a as a as a as a challenge as something that i knew could be cool if we just if we just cracked it and we figured it out and we had all of these great milestones to go through that year the travel the the tour you know the invites to london twice things like that uh and then you always know you want to you know be able to get the cast together whenever you can and we had been together a handful of times over the over the years um the best thing at, you know, at that fantastic fest when we threw the 30th anniversary kind of fan party and rebuilt the treehouse and had the, you know, production display and the, and the wardrobe and stuff. Uh, one main thing that was different about that is that was a seminal moment in the production of the documentary because to do that event, they wanted a 30 minute kind of sneak peek, which ended up being way too long because we ended up showing the highball it was supposed to be in the theater. And what we needed was probably like a, a 10 or 12 minute kind of, you know, cut uh, but they they demanded a 30 minute cut and that helped us create the look and the tone and the feel of what the finished product would be. And so that was a big milestone. Plus we got to shoot awesome footage, but I actually kind of worked with Zach Carlson and the rest of the highball staff and the fantastic fest has to throw that event while I was on the 17 city Alamo draft house nationwide tour we said, we're going to do something at Fantastic Fest. So then I had to tell the guys, Henry, you got to have a 30 minute cut done in like a month <laughs> uh, <laughs> while we're still traveling all over the place, shooting a movie. And then we're going to go to Texas uh, for Fantastic Fest and get to build the tree house. And, I mean, and that was insane. Absolutely insane. So I sort, huh? Gave them a lot of cheeseburgers, I hope. <laughs> oh yeah. They, they all had a blast, but you know, I went there early. It was, it was me my sister, my wife and, um, I had uh, 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 Allison Murphy, J- uh, Jason Murphy, the author's wife. She was amazing. She's the one that built the treehouse and fabricated all the the walls and the, and the fake tree. And then my wife sourced all the art inside, uh, you know, because of Sean Robert's list that he, you know, posted years ago. And and then we went in there and just worked our ass off and built this great display, which I think was one of the raddest things I've ever seen. You know that this you know this group of people came together to do, and then we got to shoot it. But then we flew everybody in. And my favorite thing about that is, yeah, we had Steven, we had Ryan, we had Ashley, uh, you know, John Grease came, Duncan came, and everybody loves seeing Duncan McGear because he's just, I mean, this thing. And, but we got Lisa Fuller to go. And that was the first time that anybody's ever really celebrated Patrick's sister in person. <laughs> and she just ate it up and had a ball. And now she's just been involved in everything, you know, since then. And why not? Who doesn't want to hang out with Patrick's sister? Because number one, and she's in the doc. So, you know, fortunate enough, right. she sat down and, 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 and told, you know, told her experience of, you know, just being Patrick's sister and then kind of being separated from it for a while. But, you know, learning about this resurgence from the outside and then started becoming part of it. And I mean, who's not going to put Lisa Fuller on camera? She still looks amazing. She's gorgeous. Right? <laughs> and I was and in the clubhouse at that time looking through the, bino- the binoculars uh, at the, with, that you had set up that would look through the window to see her. And then she was standing right next to me. <laughs> just yeah, like, that hey. had a little weird meta surreal moment. <laughs> right? right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I actually, I, I asked her, I think I asked her if she'd be okay with that. But I came up with that great idea of let's put a monitor behind this fake window and just have that shot through the window of the treehouse into the tree of her of oh, I'm about to take off her robe, which gets the camera snap, which is the joke in the movie. And, you know, it just had it on loop for like four hours and people could go up 
in the treehouse and sit in Rudy's alcove and look through the binoculars or the camera and see, you know, that if like, I just thought that was a cool idea. And, you know, she was, she was game for it. And luckily I, you know, I just thought it was a neat idea and hopefully everybody was okay with it. And that's amazing. You got her to come out because she hadn't been, I guess she wasn't in any of the bonus features of the 2006 Blu-ray release or anything like that. So that was, that's a, that's pretty amazing. And she, you know, never really got invited to like the original, uh, you know, conventions or screenings or everything because, you know, she's seen as sort of a, a, a featured side character and I was like, I don't think there's anything that's, that doesn't count in this, you know, in this movie. Everybody's a part of the story. You know, there's no unnecessary characters. You know, even the, you know, atmosphere sheriff, you know, they do it because they all get killed. Uh, you know, the pilots in the airplane and the old, you know, bomber freighter plane, uh, they're essential. I'd love to see them at something. You know, why not? Uh, but Patrick's sister is, is very important to the story. And uh, she's very important to Rudy. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I love, I love that. And so going through making it, was there anything that anybody said that you had never picked up on before that was something new that somebody brought like a new take or perspective? perspective yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, there's a handful and I'm, it'll probably strike me in a minute of kind of what that, you know, the, the, the top one or two is, but that's what happens when you're on the road and meeting people that you've never seen before, but you're connected by something. Um, you'll end up hearing amazing experiences or, or stories that you're like, Whoa, that's a, that's a different, now I'm looking at this, you know, from a different perspective a little bit. Uh, again, like Preston mentioned now that original generation has kids of their own. So we, you know, we've heard that a little bit. Uh, it started off with, I can't wait to show this movie to my kid. Uh, and, you know, one great story is um, uh, yeah, well, very early on, like in 08 or 09, uh, we met a fan, I, I think we're in the East Coast in Maryland or something, and, and she was like eight months pregnant. Big Monster fan. She goes, here's your next squad <laughs> member. I was like, Fantastic. And so like we took a photo and I was pointing to, you know, pointing to her, you know, her, 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 her belly. She's like, get down here and like, get, take a picture with all of us and like point. I'm like, here we go. Next squad member. And then five years later I get to meet him oh. and his name's Milo. And so that's, that was just a neat experience that someone would say that, but then that they would travel to make sure that you get to meet who you were pointing at that couldn't see that day. But five years later, you get to meet him. His name's Milo. That's cool. Not very many people get to do that. And if they do, they may not remember that original kind of interaction, but that's what happens with these, with, with these fans, you know, with these, I don't even, I don't even call them fans anymore. They're like, it's, it's a different, it, they, they, we need a different title. Um, they're, you know, you know what they are. They're members of the goddamn club. That's what it is. And it's just something different and unique. And and now like on Twitter, like they'll like Milo will send videos. Like now Milo is like 10 or 12, <laughs> but you're like, wait, what is happening here? This is amazing. Your boyhood and, there. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you one of the most, um, I, I knew I remember one of the, the things that changed your perspective on something is we were Ryan and I uh, were in uh, Chicago at a convention. It was just Ryan and I. And this guy and his son rolled up to our booth and was like, this is it. Here they are. And his son with them. 
and, and the dad was the fan, but not, you know, the son knew it. So it was like, Oh, here's another second generation, you know, dad shows his son and, and now they, you know, they're going to get me, me and Ryan. This is awesome. And we were just talking name is, you know, Matt. And, um, uh, we're like, you know, so you, you live around here. Like, you know, what he goes, no, no, no. We live in, uh, we live in Reno near Reno. I said, Reno, there's a Reno, Illinois. Like, where's that? And he's like, no, no, Reno, Nevada. And I was like, oh, what do you, like, you, like, what do you, he's like, no, 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 we just, we drove here for this. I was like, wow, you guys drove here for this convention? Because it was a big, it was uh, one of the big Wizard World conventions, I believe. And he's like, no. He said, we drove here just to meet you and Ryan. And I went, (laughs) wait a minute, what? Why? <laughs> he goes, because this is cool. This is stuff we do. We love this movie and we came on a venture. I would have brought my whole family, but my sister, uh, my daughter uh, is ill and she, she was going through something. I think it was a, a, a renal issue at the time. I can't remember. And uh, she's like, she just can't travel right now, but everybody would have come. But we just made the trip because my wife is at home with the rest of the kids, but they all wanted to come. I was like, Chicago is nowhere near Reno. And I've driven across country like two dozen times. <laughs> it's nowhere near Reno. I was like, man, this is incredible. Let's take photos and it's great. Well, a couple of years after that fact, we are in near Cincinnati for Horror Hound. And who comes around the corner but the entire family? Because we had a big Monster Squad panel. It was all, you know, all the guys and the monsters. And we had a panel. And here comes the Tappengott clan. All in cosplay as the Monster Squad. And the youngest daughter has her hair slicked. I mean, she's like this big. <laughs> and has her hair slicked back, Ray-Bans on, carrying a bow, leather jacket, boots, and just walks right up and just stands there. And she never breaks character. And I'm like, I, I, I don't know how to explain this. And luckily, uh, I was, you know, in, in, in the middle of shooting the doc, I knew I wanted to find a way, which is not easy, to shoot something on uh, Warner Brothers lot in, in Town Square you know, where the, the final action sequence takes place. And I don't know how to work that together. Long story short, I had a, a contact at the PR department. She worked something out to where it was a sort of like, yeah, you can come and be here this day, but you're not really shooting anything, but you're shooting something. It's fine. Um, and I was like, is there any way that I can, cause we would have gone and done something just with us, but I was like, there's gotta be a fan experience that I can bring a fan that's local in LA or, you know, close to LA, like, and bring them on the lot to show them town square because they've never been on it. Unless they've been on the Warner brothers golf cart tour, which is probably the best studio tour out there. Uh, and lo and behold, Matt Tappan got and his family from Reno. were driving to Disneyland that weekend. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to ruin half of your commute day. But if you'll leave early and meet me at, I, I think we had a meet at a, at a restaurant or something. It was like, I was going to go to breakfast, but I've got a surprise for you. <laughs> and I said, now follow me here. And we drove onto the Warner Brothers lot. And I said, I said, make sure the kids are in costume. And uh, they, so, and I drive them on the lot and we, that's the family in the dock that I take in town square and it got to be them. And I think that worked out perfect. Oh man. What a wonderful story. I think our hearts are a little heavier right now. <laughs> so I wanted to, they drove a literally a, you know two thirds across the country twice just to hang out with us and I was like the, if I can make this work these are the ones I'd really love to make it work for and I, it happened <laughs> oh that's great 
That's oh, way to go. <laughs> you know, it's not, look, it worked out. A lot of other people helped, but that was a drive. I really wanted to make that. And it just worked out. Look, everything that happened during the shooting of this doc was all timing that came together. And you can, while that's happening and go down, I didn't, uh, that was great that that worked out. I, why is this working out? So well, don't even ask, just go with it, <laughs> you know, analyze it later because you don't want to ruin that streak. There was so much good stuff that happened and so many cool people. Like when we started the doc and, 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 and pitched the project and started shooting, I didn't know we were going to do that 17 city Alamo draft house tour. And look what a formative kind of through line that that whole thing became to the story of the documentary and the fan experience. And the 30th anniversary year. I didn't know we were going to London. I was working on it, but that happened very quickly. Got great stories from all of that. And it was just all these things just ended up falling in place and happening in a very short amount of time. And boy, I put these guys, Wes and Henry and, and, and all these guys through the ringer. And they got up every day and did it. They were editing the movie in real time, you know, the back of the airplane or back of the minivan while they were chasing us around Texas. Well, we were all getting chased by Hurricane Harvey for four days. <laughs> Um, you know, you remember that one (laughs) and that was our tour day. You know, that was, we were in Texas for seven and a half day or seven days, eight days. And we started in Houston and Harvey was a day and a half off of Houston. And then we left Houston and went to Corpus Christi and then went to Laredo and then went to San Antonio and you're right. then Austin and then Dallas and the kids insane. Oh my, oh my. And, uh, and we got all that stuff and, um, uh, it's, I mean, just things worked out great. And then at the end of the tour of that 17, you know, cities in 17 days, which everybody thinks that's insane. I was like, but most people don't realize, yeah, that's 17 cities in 17 days, but more than half of those locations had double screenings. So right. we had to do everything twice a night. <laughs> and so you're really doing like 25 or 26 shows in 17 days and signings and Q and A's and all that. Uh, and at the very end, we got one of the most powerful stories we have on camera with Sean Decker, you know, telling his experience of him growing up in, in Waynesboro, Virginia and what happened to him and how this movie impacted him and changed his life. And you can't script that. You can't plan that. The gear and the camera was done. Like all the guys that sat down, I think they were drinking a beer at the bar and Sean came up just to get his autograph and photo and, and just gave me a little tidbit. And I honestly, I, you know, I've told him the story. I was like, I listened to it and I heard it, but I had like 50 people behind him, you know, that we were all trying to get to and sign and you kind of rush. And that's, but I said, wait a minute, tell me that. What did you just tell me? And I was like, would you want to tell that story on camera? He's like, for your documentary? I said, yeah. He goes, I would love to. And I said, come with me. And Henry and all all the gear was packed up. Pelican cases shut. And I said, Henry, you've got to get the camera out. Wes, you've got to get a microphone out and you guys go around the corner. Sean's got a great story. And I had told him this probably, you know, 111 times, you know, in these last three weeks <laughs> and, you know, we use a handful. This one was different. And, uh, you know, Henry's like, Oh my God. Okay, let's go. It's great. And then it just wrecked everybody. And it's such a powerful moment in the documentary. And we wouldn't have got that if Sean didn't, if he had just come up and said, love the movie. It means a lot to me. Can I get a photo? Dank gone. Would, would never have understood his story, never been told his story, never been able to put it on camera, never been able to fit it in the dock at the perfect spot, and then n- would not be able to call him our pal to this day. That's wonderful. Wonderful. There is a, see, a lot, of, a lot of stuff has come from this movie and this documentary. I think, like you said, 
early on, there's, uh, these are not fans. They're part of the whole experience. And that's what you capture. They are, they're, they're part of the fabric. You know, they are, you know, you can come up with whatever, you know, like I said, you know, they're, they're all, you know, they're all in the goddamn club. Yeah. And yeah, look, I'll, I'll tell you what, to get a kick, to get the kick out of just saying that to someone like, like I got my Wolfman's got nards. Can I be in the goddamn club now? And then like you tweet back, like you're definitely in the guy and they just lose their, like, they're like, that's all I wanted to hear for 30. Years. I'm like, Oh, I would have said that 20 years ago. I'm so like, yeah, absolutely. You are. And they, they, they always know they're part of it, but then they get like their badge or something. And I'm like, what's better. Like what could be cooler than this to interact like that? And it actually means something, you know? Right. And it just, like you said, it le- it's, it, it just never stops connecting and, and leading to other things. Uh, weaving fabrics of people and things together, including us. We're all part of that fabric. You know, we, right. we just happen to be a thread over here while Sean Decker's over here and Sean Robert's over here and Grace Chan and Sierra Nelly over here. But we're all wove into the same thing. And it's just really weird. That's cool. Was there any part, because uh, you um, interview and have a lot of filmmakers and actors talk about this movie, what it meant to them. Was there any buddy in particular that you were kind of said back like, whoa, you like Monster Squad? I mean, I know there's, why do you not like Monster Squad? But like, I did not expect you to like it. Uh, n- not anybody that we actually have on camera because we already knew that those were those connections and, and, and they okay. were interested in being involved. Um, usually I get the goes like, is there anybody that you know you wanted and didn't get because they're a Monster Squad fan, you just wanted them on camera? Yes, the answer is yes. And the answer is Ryan Gosling. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any clubs that or any squads that you would love to be in? Like over the years you've been, you've, I, I'm sure you've become fans of other properties. Is there any uh, clubs that you would like to be in? Oh, what a great question. If you would email me that, I would have had three rad ones for you. Um, I'm just going to go with, you know, some of my all time favorite stuff. Um, I would have been like, the, I, I would have been, I would have loved to have been part of, Oh, I just added another one. Sorry. So you're going to get a handful of answers. All right. Bring them. I would have liked to be a part of the T-Birds in Greece. Okay. Uh, definitely a part of the good kid group in Stand By Me, uh, which I auditioned for. I, you, know, you know, everybody reads for everything. I, I really wanted to be in Stand By Me. Uh, I, I auditioned for the uh, Teddy Duchamp role. Um, and, but would I have done it? Yes. Would I have done it? Okay. Sure. Corey Feldman's great in that movie. Uh, all four of those kids are, are perfect in, in where they are in that movie. I think it's one of the best kids adventure movies. Um, but it's tied for first of, of my favorite kids adventure movie, the eighties. Uh, if I was going to be part of a squad, I'd be want to be a part of the Wolverines. Yeah. Wolverines. Cause red Dawn is my favorite all time kids adventure movie. <laughs> <laughs> and what an adventure it is. <laughs> And I'll add another one because I said you had a handful. I would have loved to have been um, on the Hickory basketball team in Hoosiers because I am a basketball player. I was born way too late to really play in the era that I you know, should have been in uh, and would absorb. But I love that, that, that time in history, and that's a fabulous movie. So I, I would have liked to have been uh, on the Hickory squad. That is great. Um, so, Andre, what is your most thrilling – movie experience both as a filmmaker and as a fan my thrilling experience as a as a as a filmmaker is probably and i don't even know what what i 
it, we'll do it with the doc too. But you know, when, when you're a filmmaker and you're like, Oh, this is, you know, I, I've got a team of people working. This is awesome, but this is, yeah, we made it happen. And you say cut, you know, for the first time, you know, then when you when you do like director shit, <laughs> you know, it just, you know, you're like, Oh my God, like I've just watched, you know, my entire life. I've watched hundreds of people do this and now I'm doing it. Now I'm, I'm that's kind of cool. Um, I, I think as a fan, I liked going to the drive-in with my dad. Um, and we would go see like Bond. I, I remember, I remember the car. I remember the feel of the seats. Uh, and this, I don't even think they had the antenna thing where you ran it through your stereo. Yeah. There's another shitty box in the window. Uh, but I think the, f- maybe the first movie I ever saw at the drive-in or maybe second, my dad was Octopussy. Uh, my dad was, you know, we, we loved Bond. We loved Bond movies. So I watched a lot of movies on TV or going to the movies with my dad. Uh, he was a big spy guy, cold war movie, Gene Hackman. Um, but I think, Oh, I want to go back to what squad I want to be into. I want to be in the revolution in Purple Rain. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot one. More um, I forgot. That was the first one that clicked in my head, but then all the other ones came up. Um, I could be, you know, Wendy Melvoin's like, you know, Rhodey or something. I don't care. Um, where was I? Oh, so, uh, I think as a fan, obviously, probably uh, 80, 83. Um, I got invited because I was a kid in the business and, you know, either through my publicist or manager or something got invited to this Academy screening of the third star Wars movie. And it was a big Academy screening, a lot of people going and it's like, this is the, you know, the, the last installment of, you know, the star Wars trilogy. And when you were a, if you were a kid and got invited to screenings, you know, it's a big Academy building on Wilshire, I believe. And just this huge grand event. And you got a swag bag of stuff. And nobody knew at the time that they were going to change the title. And so when we went to this industry screening, this Academy screening of Revenge of the Jedi, all of my swag says Revenge of the Jedi. Oh, that's amazing. Do you still have it? I have one thing. (laughs) I have a a button and that is it. Uh, What I wish I had was um, a couple action figures and boxes and I got a ship. I got a, you know, uh, they weren't blister packs back then, you know, the cardboard with, you know, see-through, you know, see-through window, yeah. and all the artwork on the box. And of course it had the logo and the, you know, Star Wars, or, you know, Star Wars, you know, Revenge of the Jedi. And it had this ship and it was a ship that you don't see anywhere. It didn't exist. Yeah. And apparently they replaced it. Uh, I, I think what ended up the ship was supposed to be was the Imperial uh, shuttle that they steal and get the codes and land on the Endorian moon, you know, because the wings come down. And then that ended up being a thing that we see a ton of times in Star Wars stuff now. But this little ship was this little crappy cargo boxy, like dump truck looking truck with a can of and had these wings that came down and then folded up. And it was square and boxy and gray. And me being 10 and seeing this movie, I was like, yeah, I'm a Star Wars fan. And I got cool enough to go to the screening of Revenge of the Jedi. I took all that shit out and played with it for, you know, and then they changed the title and I didn't know you're not supposed to take collectibles out of the box and use them. <laughs> I don't know where that shit is now. And I'm like, I wonder what that ship went like. That would be a cool piece to have. It really would. I don't know where it is. Uh, as, as much stuff as I have kept, even from different eras of my life or that Dorothy, my mom has stowed away in the garages over years. Uh, and there's a ton of stuff. Um, the only thing I have from that is a revenge of the Jedi. 
button. But that's probably as a fan, probably the biggest, coolest thing, maybe. Cool. Well, that's cool. And uh, what are and nerdy s- enough? Is that nerdy enough? I mean, it's like pretty not nerdy, nerdy enough. enough. No, <laughs> that's great. And I guess uh, one of my last questions for you. Obviously, I know I've asked you this before, but maybe your tastes have changed in five years. But uh, since your sense of purveyor of cinema over the years, what are what are some of the particular scenes in movies that have always stuck with you, that always inspire, that you wake up and you're like, fuck, that scene's good? Or when you're working and you're like, this scene in this movie is good. So you guys ask way too good of questions that they need to be they need to be like emailed like a day pre-interview questions yeah, pre-interview, I mean, pre-interview questions for the highlights uh i'm pretty good at winging it and coming up with cool stuff but uh these are awesome let's see um wow <clears throat> uh i i have a couple and i've actually already mentioned them because they were kind of you know the coolest you know moments uh scenes that i love um the, the first guitar riff at the end when they actually play purple rain in purple rain that's a really cool moment and Wendy's emotional and like they play the song because he finally gives everybody credit that's neat and to, um, to add on to that real quick uh you've mentioned Prince twice are you a big Prince fan did you get to see him while he was alive in concert I I didn't my Dorothy my mother has seen Prince in concert like twice and I've never I never got to see him uh huge Prince fan I I won my uh sixth grade uh talent show costume contest I dressed up as Prince and lip sync uh, When Doves Cry, and I beat Erin Rivlin. And um, she did an interpretive jazz dance to The Heat Is On by Glenn Fry. And she wore a yellow leotard with like streamers coming off her fingers. And it was fantastic, but I was better. Um, <laughs> see, who remembers shit like that except for me? Um, and, you know what? I would, I want to. You know how they recreate photos and stuff? I want to recreate like a photo of me and Aaron Rivlin. <laughs> I want her in the same outfit and I'll go put on the print shit again. I totally <laughs> want to do that so bad. Please do uh, that for the new year. Please do that. <laughs> uh, and that's all sixth grade. I love that, that class. I actually posted a photo on my Instagram of that sixth grade class. And, uh, you know, I love every single one. I had so much fun in school. And that sixth grade year, we had a I, probably one of the best teachers that has ever walked to this planet, and uh, uh, Mr. Fields and Dr. Fields, but uh, fabulous. And I love every one of my classmates from that time. And we're still some of us are still friends on Facebook and and Instagram and, and in real life. Um, let's see. Okay, so we we said uh, the first draw. These are scenes that impacted me. Um. Any of the action sequences of the uh, in Hoosiers, you know, d- during games, that's great. But when they walk into that huge, you know, Butler Arena, that's kind of a feeling. If you've ever experienced that of being like, whoa. And I've, I've, I've felt that for real playing college basketball and walking into a giant arena for the first time. So that's kind of neat. Um, does anything in Starship Troopers count? Like all those things are great. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. um, <laughs> but no, well, the, you know, everybody, every... <laughs> genius movie by the way that's a it whole is, other pod- that's amazing. a whole other podcast uh it's a whole other po- which i've done two and a half hours on starship troopers uh with uh, two scottish dudes so i think everybody understood me and nobody else um but uh that was fun uh that was mitch's thing is great uh i'll i'll end since you know like I, I can go on for hours with this but uh 
one of my favorite movies is Mr. Holland's Opus. I love that movie. And <laughs> it, it's such a great movie. And it's because I've always appreciated teachers and I've always appreciated coaches and because and, I've had very awesome ones in my life. And I've also under, I, I relate to that because if I probably wasn't doing all the dumb stuff that I've done, uh, I, I probably would have just been a coach or a teacher and I would have been totally fine with that. And look, I mean, that movie shows that, but it also relates on a different level with me is because he's a guy that's like, I'm talented. I should do this. I should be a giant star and I should be a bazillionaire and I should be making Broadway show. And that's sort of what, you know, Glenn Holland expected his life to be. And he got caught up in this small town being a teacher because he had of a job because he just got, you know, as, as a young, you know, you know, a guy with his, his new wife, pregnant wife, and he gets stuck. And, you know, 35 years later, he's retiring. And, and when that scene at the end, when, you know, his entire student body of his life has come back and plays his composition. And, you know, it, it's, it's a very emotional moment for him because they realize that his life was not misspent. And that's, that's, a, that's, that, that scene always gets me. Doesn't matter. Mr. Holland's opus in scene uh, when he comes in uh, is uh, every is is my Phoebe and Frankenstein don't go away. Thing. <laughs> it's everybody every time uh, at the end of Mr. Holland's opus gets me every time, and a lot of other movies get me every time. But we could sit here for days, <laughs> and, and we will at some point. But uh, yeah, no, I love Mr. Holland's opus being, I guess, playing saxophone and clarinet at that time when that came out, and having it teacher like him it was uh it hit home (laughs) yeah well especially the clarinet scene with you know the student who ends up being coming governor (laughs) you know right that's a that that was a great character arc and story of the impact and you're like the first time you see that you're just like right right on the right on the heart (laughs) it is so good well andre thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today um Wolfman's Gotten Arts documentary. I'm going to throw it to you. The spotlight is on you, maybe in the vein of, uh, of the Monster Squad itself. Tell everybody where they can find Wolfman's Gotten Arts as Sean. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. In the vein as Sean. Well, you can find it on Twitter at, at the Squad Doc. What? Rudy. <laughs> um, and I can't even go that. That almost, that's, I can't even, it almost hurts to get that high. Uh, <laughs> that's my bad me imitation of myself as a 13 year old. Um, no, uh, if you want to follow the documentary, it's uh, you can go to the squad doc.com uh, or on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, if you've heard of any of those uh, at the squad doc, it's two D's in there. And then please feel free to follow me. Uh, Andre Gower official on the Instagram and at Andre Gower on Twitter. Uh, please also follow awesome people that are connected to the movie uh, like Henry McComas and Wes Caldwell and all these awesome people that, uh, you know, love to hear your feedback and love to hear if you enjoy the doc or their other works. And like I said, I'm, I'm getting most of the attention for Wolfman's Got Nards right now because I'm sort of that, you know, you know, front of the gate type thing, but I did not make this movie by myself. Um, you know, it's only out because uh, we ended up with a great, um, you know, distribution uh, deal and distributed with Gravitas Ventures. But my studio partner, Pilgrim Media Group, which is why I know Henry and Wes and uh, Eric and Aaron and Shane and all these great people that worked on this film. Um, th- this was definitely not, you know, made by one person. 
Awesome. Awesome. There, there you go, folks. And we're, we'll hope for a, a big criterion release of Wolfman's Got Nards at some oh, point. My. Well, <laughs> you know, if that happens, uh, then something went right. But right now I just like you to either rent it on VOD or download it digitally and buy it and own it or get the Blu-ray or DVD off of Amazon. And then we'll see about criterion, but you know, that would be really cool. <laughs> Excellent. Baby steps, Brian. Again, baby steps. Baby Baby steps. steps.